Before we begin our Torah study, let's pray together. Baruch atah Adonai lahinu melech haolam asher kitsheno b'misvatav v'tzivano la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. <clears throat> I want to talk this morning about our life in Messiah because it is in Messiah through the Holy Spirit that we experience profound love. And I want to compare this life in Messiah, the life of faith that we have, to a cord of three strands. Three strands of love that together reflect our life in Messiah. Now, almost everyone is familiar with that statement in Scripture, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. But I'm not talking about those details that have to do with having brothers and sisters who can stand with you and join together with you. That's important, but I'm not talking about that. I just want to use the idea that there are three, three strands that get woven together that when you recognize them and you pay attention to all three, you will be strong. And the first strand is the love of God. So let's say that, love of God. I don't mean by the love of God, the love that we have for God. Rather, I mean the love that God has for us. God's love, Paul wrote, has been shed abroad in our hearts. Shed abroad, poured out abundantly. The love that God has for us is what I'm talking about first. This is the first strand. And this love originates from God himself. And so we could say that God's love for us comes first. And if you think about it clearly, many scriptures may come to your mind, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The love that God has causes him to do many things on our behalf. And this is the first strand of love. So the love God has for us. Now I'll put you on the spot one more time. Not the last time, but just one more time. And I want you to smile at someone who's sitting next to you and say this, God has love for you. He has great love for you. Okay, it's easier for some people to say this than it is to say the next part. Turn to whomever you just spoke to and, and say this, God has love for me. God has love for me. God loves me. God loves you. God loves me. Some people find it easy to say, God loves you. But in their own solitude, they have difficulty believing God loves them. But I want to tell you that the love of God for us, for you, 
is so powerful and so strong. It is the foundation. Without this strand of love, you really can't go very far. Now, the second strand represents the love that we have for God. So you could say that this is our response to our personal experience of Hashem's perfect and unfailing love. Our love for Him is a response to this divine love of His. Our own love for God is something that's alive in our hearts. It has life. It grows. It matures and develops with, within us. And it's a blend of love and respect and awe. It's not just love. It's love with respect. We honor the Lord with reverence and with awe. And why? Because He is greater. He is far greater than we are. And so I'm not talking about thinking of God as your best buddy or your pal. I'm talking about responding to a holy God with love and awe. And this blend, this blend of love and respect and awe mirrors the heart of King David. David was described as a man after God's own heart. He possessed a love that was more than just sentimentality. It was marked by deep devotion and obedience to the Lord. Yeshua has confronted people, the scripture tells us, and he said, why do you say, Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? The prophet Samuel told King Saul that Saul did not have this, this kind of love for God. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. You can turn there and read it with me, follow along. Saul brings this word, or rather Samuel brings this word to Saul, and he says, now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart and appointed him to be ruler over his people because you, Saul, have not kept the command of the Lord. Maybe Saul had love, but he didn't have awe and respect. And it wasn't enough. David, on the other hand, was a man after God's own heart, and his love was combined with respect and with awe. And that's why he was so different from Saul. The apostle Paul took note of this, and it's described in Acts chapter 13. So if, if you have Bibles and you can turn there, flip there, or poke your finger there using your digital Bible, tap there. Acts 13, starting in, I think it's verse 14. It's, it's interesting the context, because this is describing what happened on a Shabbat morning at synagogue 
after the reading of the Torah and the prophets. And so you could say it was like a day like today that you're experiencing. It says, when Paul and his group came to Antioch in uh, Pisidia and went into synagogue on Yom Shabbat on Sabbath morning and sat down and after the reading of the Torah and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent to them saying, men and brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on, speak. You're invited to speak. So do you get the context? It was a synagogue service that included the reading of the Torah and the prophets. And and Paul was there with his group because that's where they were on Shabbat. They weren't at Antioch megachurch. Nothing against megachurches, there just weren't. They were at synagogue. And why were they at synagogue? Because that's where they that's where they worshiped. So verse 16, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand. I tried to imagine what that was like. I think it was probably something like, you know, like all of you, men of Israel, and you who fear God. And that could be understood two different ways. It could be men of Israel who fear God. And it could also be that it was addressing those who were not born of Israel but were called God-fearers who had joined together in the synagogue with the Jewish people. They had not become Jewish, and they had not um, converted, if you will, to Judaism through Brit Milah and through immersion, but they had joined themselves to the God of Israel and the people Israel. And it was, it was a phenomenon that was taking place in the, in the first century, in the time of Yeshua, in the time of the apostles. And so it wasn't uncommon for synagogues to be inclusive of Jews and those who weren't Jewish, but together they were worshiping the God of Israel. So it could be understood in, in both ways. So Paul is addressing and he's saying, men of Israel and And God fears. Listen, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. And I really like that because Paul is making it really clear that that he is one of the chosen people. He's one of Israel. And then let's go to verse 22, just to skip to that. Because Paul is describing, he's describing the faithfulness of God and how it turned out that Messiah should be known. And this is just a little detail, but it's an important detail because Paul is recalling what we just read in 1 Samuel, and he's telling everyone that that Saul had been king, but he didn't have a heart after the Lord. And he didn't have awe and fear of the Lord. And so he was replaced with David who became king, who was faithful. And who was a man after God's heart. And to whom God later promised that 
his kingdom would endure and his family would endure and that Messiah would be born from him. And so Paul is recalling all, all of this in order to give context for his later proclamation that the Messiah who's been promised to King David has come. But at this moment, he's speaking to the hearts of the people by pointing out what happened with King Saul and King David and contrasting them. Acts 13, 22, when the Lord had removed Saul, he raised up for Israel David to be king to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Now, interestingly, there is a place in scriptures that said that David did all the will of the Lord. His heart was fully devoted to the Lord except in the matter of Uriah. It's like pointing out this was his sin, this was his failure, and it was confronted by God and him and the prophet and so forth, and he repented of it and turned from it. So, Mishpacha, I want to tell you this, that to be a disciple of the Lord is to aspire to be like David, son of Jesse, who was a man after God's own heart. And he would do all of God's will. God has plans for you. He has things for you to do that he will assign to you that are important. Some are high and lofty. Some are unique to you. Some are just common things. But as well, they're important things. He will put things in your heart even when you're a child that you will later fulfill as an adult. And he wants you to have a heart, a heart of love for God, a heart that recognizes that the God who is love and who created you knows you and cares about you and wants you to fulfill all the great purposes he has in mind for you. So to be a disciple of the Lord is not just to say, yes, I believe, but it's to live with faithfulness, to live in a way that honors the Lord. So the second strand of this three-chord strand represents our love for God together with devotion and obedience to him. Now the third strand, and I'm going to spend some time on this one, the third strand of love represents our love for Israel, the people, the nation, and the land. The Lord loves his people, Israel. And our love for Israel unites us with his love and his purposes and aligns our heart with his divine plan. So our love of Messiah has these three Strands. It's a cord of three strands. God's love for us, our response and love, devotion and awe towards him, and then our love for what he loves, especially our love for his people Israel. 
And I want to focus on that third strand. Now, the leaders of the first generation of Messianic Jews understood that loyalty to God was accompanied by loyalty to Israel, the nation. So this is a little history that's going to be woven into this. They understood the connection of their faith in the God of Israel and their faithfulness to the Jewish people. I personally think it was tragic when these two aspects of loyalty and faith were separated by later generations. It was the terrible consequence of what Paul had written the Romans about, and he had labeled it ignorance and arrogance. And in our day and in our generation, in our synagogue, we have the opportunity, we have the responsibility to make it clear that we are loyal to God and we are loyal to the Jewish people. Our loyalty to God is united with our loyalty to the Jewish people. Don't fall for the, the trap, which is more important. That's just a trap. These two work together, love of God and love for his people. The two great commandments, to love God and to love people. They work together. They're not, they're not contrary to each other. They are like each other, and they unite together, and we need both sides. We need all these sides. So our loyalty to God is united with our loyalty to the Jewish people. And Torah established this in Genesis 12, when God utters his covenantal call and promise to Abraham. Genesis 12, verse 2, you probably know it by heart, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. So this is the covenantal call that God gives. And it includes the promise of God to make Abraham into a great nation and to bless him, and to bless all the families of the earth through this nation. God's promise to Abraham and then extended to Isaac and to Jacob and beyond was a promise to bring forth the nation. So the vision of faith includes a vision regarding the covenantal nation. Now let's go to another example, Ruth who famously expressed it when she dared to be joined to God and the Jewish people, Ruth the Moabitess had great chutzpah when she spoke to her Jewish mother-in-law, Naomi. It's in Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 16. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Do you see the unity of these two ideas? People and God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. That's chutzpah. Naomi, you're not going to get rid of me even after you're dead. <coughs> I'm going to be buried next you. And then she said, 
may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. That was a lot of chutzpah for a Moabitess. In Ruth chapter 4, the Jewish community in Bethlehem, where Ruth moved to, blessed Ruth with their love and acceptance. And I think they anticipated prophetically that Ruth would be a blessing to all the Jewish people. And in case you didn't know it, through Ruth comes the family of Jesse and King David and Messiah. So Messiah comes through this line of people who, who got it, that love of God and love of his people and holding on together in, in covenantal faithfulness, these are united together. Ruth 4 verse 11 tells us, uh, something fantastic. The elders and all the people at the gate in, in Bethlehem said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. And so they recognize her. They recognize that this is Ruth the Moabitess, but she will be to us like Rachel and Leah. She will be to us like those women of old who have been used by God to build up the Jewish people. So Ruth's loyalty to God and her loyalty to the Jewish people were inseparable. It was also true for Miriam, the mother of Yeshua. Now, in English, how do you say Miriam? It was a trick question. Actually, you can say Miriam. But the more common English form of the name is Mary. My grandmother, my father's mother, her Hebrew name was Miriam. Her English name was Mary, Grandma Mary. Miriam, the mother of Yeshua, when she heard the news of her pregnancy with Messiah, Messiah who would save the people, she received it as good news. Here is an unwed teenager who's pregnant. How does she explain that? Well, she hears what the Lord says, and she boldly proclaims that the coming of Messiah was a revelation of God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel. So it's in Luke chapter one, chapter one, and Miriam, this young, probably teenage mother of Yeshua beautifully, poetically speaks, starting in verse 46, and she says, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation. See, she had that kind of love for God that united 
her love with awe. Verse 51, he's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. And then let's pay careful attention to these last two verses, verse 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So here you see that that Miriam's faith in God was united to her loyalty to Israel, the Jewish people. And when she hears what God wants to do through her, to be a mother of Messiah, She rejoices. She receives this as good news, even though it's going to be difficult. Understand, it will be difficult. But she also understands this is how God is being faithful to her people Israel. This is how God is being faithful to Abraham. He's doing something that has history and continuity and reflects his love and faithfulness. Now, as we read this week's Torah portion, I want to point out how the same kind of understanding is woven into the text. Last week, we read about those five sisters who successfully appealed for the laws of Israel to be amended so that they could be recognized as inheritors and owners of property. And now this week, we read in Numbers 36 that the law is further amended and clarifying And it stipulates that such women who inherit property should marry within their own tribe, these in in the land of Israel, so that the land inheritance of their tribe remains unbroken through the generations. And it tells us in Numbers 36, verse 12, that the sisters were married into the families of the descendants of Manasseh, the son of Yosef, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's family. So keep that in mind, and then remember this. Earlier in Numbers chapter 32, Moses permitted the tribes of Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh to settle on the east side of the Jordan River under a condition that they remain loyal to God and loyal to the rest of the children of Israel. And They had to agree to that loyalty, and they had to serve in Israel's army. They had to make it a priority to stand with Israel for her defense. And they did. So these two loyalties, loyalty to God and loyalty to the Jewish people, were always meant to be connected. They were part of the covenantal call to Abraham. They were part of the covenant for Isaac and Jacob and for the tribes of Israel. They carried forth into the kingdom of Israel with King David getting it. But even before that, his... his, uh, 
his ancestor Ruth outside of Israel, Moabitess, she gets it too. And she, she says, your people will be my people, your God, my God. She unites that together. So the whole line of Messiah comes through this understanding. Moses was concerned for the well-being of Israel as a whole, and he reflected that in his concern for the tribes. So he wanted what was good for this one family, these daughters, but he wanted what was good for all the families and the tribes of Israel. The patriarch Jacob, what was his other name? Israel. He had sons, they brought forth families, the families became tribes, and the tribes became a nation, Israel. The book of Numbers, in fact, which we end in our readings today, began with a statement that my wife Sandy showed me that sort of establishes the theme. It's Numbers 1-2. It says, count the whole community of Israel by their tribes, by their families, ev listing every man by his name one by one. So it's all those different levels because the reckoning of the people Israel before God unites the families and unites the individuals and unites the tribes together. All this was part of God's plan. Moses saw it, the prophets saw it, the apostles saw it. But here's the sad fact. Something happened, and the connection between loyalty to the God of Israel and loyalty to the people Israel was broken. They were separated, they were disconnected, but they belonged together. Years ago, I was dealing with this, and I had, I had this idea that only some Gentile Christians were called to love the Jewish people. And the reason I thought that was because I only saw some who loved the Jewish people. And so I thought that must be their calling. And I was pondering that in a very serious way. And then I came to see that I was mistaken. I wasn't mistaken about my observation, about my data. I was mistaken about my perspective. My view was too low. And I started reading the apostles in the New Testament, the, the New Covenant Scriptures, and nowhere did they say, some of you shouldn't love the Jewish people. They never said that. They never said, you know, only a few of you will love the Jews. The rest of you can be anti-Semites. It's okay. There's nothing like that in the Scriptures. And so I realized that I was taking the, the empirical data of what I was observing, and I was applying it in a wrong way to my understanding. And, you know, here's a way of fixing understanding Take what the Scriptures say and let it change the way you think, rather than take the way you think and then filter the Scriptures through that. And so I realized my perspective was wrong, my view was too low. The Apostle Paul never suggested that only some Gentiles should have his heart for the Jewish people. 
in Romans chapter 9, verses 2 through 5. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Messiah for the sake of my people, those of my own nation, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of Torah, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Do you see how Paul is knitting together his love for his people, God's love for God's people, his faith in Messiah, and what he wants everyone under his influence to embrace. So for Paul, the love of God, his love of God, this commitment to Messiah also required a love and a commitment to the Jewish people. So what can we say? All disciples of Messiah, Jews and Gentiles, all are called to love the Jewish people and to have the Jewish homeland in their hearts. We're called to seek the good of the Jewish people. We're called to sacrifice for the good of the Jewish people. We're called to cherish synagogues, messianic synagogues, where Yeshua is honored. We're called to actually love the Jewish people as an expression of our love for the God of Israel. Now, in centuries past, when Jews became believers in Messiah, they were often told, you're no longer Jewish. That's not true, that they're no longer Jewish. They're often, they were often encouraged to renounce their Jewishness. And many actually became adversaries of the Jewish people. It's a tragic part of our history. But we're called not to be adversaries, we're called to be advocates. The apostles taught carefully and they spoke strongly that the ingrafted Gentiles also were to share the heart for Israel, that he had the Jewish people as part of their heart for God. So we could say to be a Messianic believer was to be grafted into the vine of Messiah, and that vine was promised to Israel. John 15, 5, Yeshua said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Those who stay united with me and I with them are the ones who will bear much fruit because apart from me, you can't do a thing. Mishpokah, we're just the branches. We're not the vine. And apart from Yeshua, we can't be fruitful. This is our life, Mishpacha. We have experienced the love of God. We have experienced his love for us. We have experienced the awesomeness of this love that God has for us that motivated him to come as our Messiah and Lord. We've experienced, it, experienced this awesome love that God has demonstrated through the mercies and through the faithfulness of Messiah and also through the death and the burial and the resurrection of Messiah. This love has been shed abroad in our hearts. This is what has happened. And our hearts are filled with that love and that's why our hearts belong to him. 
If we don't have that love, we haven't yet become His. But we are His. And that's why we want to be like King David. Whether we're a man or a woman, a child or a teen, we want to be a person after God's heart. To love what He loves, to do His will, to trust Him and to be faithful to Him. And that's why we love the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, because we love what God loves. And it's also why we embrace God's love for the nations of the world. It's, it's a beautiful life of love that we've been called to and that we embrace. And it grows and it matures and it brings forth great fruit. But during the first generations, these are our last thoughts, after Yeshua, the first generations began to see that the connection was being broken despite the apostles' warnings and example. And Gentiles began to think that they could believe in Messiah but have no regard for the well-being of the Jewish people. And so, tragically, the ignorance mixed together with arrogance, and it grew worse over time. And in many ways, it defined the age of the Christianity of the early bishops who forbade Jewishness among the body of Messiah and who despised the Jewishness of the Jewish believers. But I can tell you that the anti-Semitism and replacement theology that permeated much of Christianity that way is in some places changing. And it's important to recognize it will prevail. And eventually, replacement theology will be replaced. And anti-Semitic theology will be destroyed and overcome. It won't make it into eternity. It's going to be cleaned up and cleaned out. So let's be on the alert in a good way. We need all these three strands I've been talking about. They're not easy to break. And think of it, the love of God, the love God has for us, our love for Him, and our love for what he loves. They're intertwined together, and they empower us, and they sustain us, and they guide us as we navigate our journey in Messiah. So I want us to cherish and value this cord of three strands of love because it's the essence of our life with him. Let's pray this way. Lord, we thank you for your unfailing love. We honor you with our love and our reverence, and we hold you in awe. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to our people Israel. Let us be strong in our love. Let our love for Messiah, Lord, unite together these three loves that the world may see your love in us. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. One more prophetic word from Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9. V'ne'emar v'haya Adonai l'melecha kol ha'aretz b'yom ha'hu yiyah Adonai echad u'shmo echad. 
it has been said, the Lord shall be king over all the world. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Amen.